welcome to Four Questions. I am here with Sunil Amrith, who is Professor of South Asian Studies at History at Harvard University. Sunil, welcome. Thank you, Alice. It's really nice to be on Four Questions. Okay, so I want to talk to you about your book, Unruly Waters, which is really about the history of how people have engaged and tamed uh, waters in South Asia. So tell me, is geography destiny? Does water shape economic development in South Asia? At one level, I think it does, and I think this, the simplest way to think about that is the fact that even today, around 60% of agriculture in India is not irrigated, is entirely rain-fed. Uh, given that India, 60% um, of India's population is still employed in agriculture, um, and if you extend that beyond India to other parts of Southeast Asia and even East Asia, I would say you know, the livelihoods of hundreds of millions of people still depend in a very, very direct way on water, on rainfall, on the ability to harness that. So that's, I suppose, a sort of big picture answer to the question. But I think over the course of the last 100 years, but especially the last 30 or 40 years, in many ways it has been the quest to ensure that water doesn't shape Asia's destiny that has driven a lot of the changes that we have seen. And, and what I mean by that is, if you look at either India or China today, mm. the most economically productive um, agricultural regions are, are pretty arid. Mm. And that is driven entirely by artificial irrigation. This is true of Punjab and India. It's true. So this is the Green Revolution? It's the Green Revolution. It's the use of groundwater. It is that whole quest, in a sense, to liberate Asian agriculture from climate. What led to the Green Revolution? How did that come about? I think there are multiple routes. I mean, to some extent, this is a story of the history of technology. Mm -hmm. And, and we, we know about the hybrid seeds, which, of course, play a central yes. role. But I think there's a longer history to it. I okay. think there's a history of technology that we need to think about, but there's also a history of ideas. Mm. And there's a history of ideas that goes back to the end of the 19th century, the early 20th century, which is precisely that idea that India, and I'll speak specifically about India, was a prisoner of climate. Mm. And that science and technology held the promise of un undoing those shackles. Right. And so in that sense, one can see the Green Revolution as... Um, the, the fullest development of an idea that, in fact, there were no limits to growth, mm. that all sorts of technologies, um, large dams and then increasingly groundwater, uh, held the key to, to the almost limitless use of, of water for irrigation. And I guess there are contemporary parallels, like some people who aren't that worried about climate change say, well, technology will fix it, That's it. right? That's it. And, and I think there's a kind of direct line mm. one can draw uh, with that way of thinking about about so, so that 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 idea that optimism for technology you're saying that that predated the green revolution oh, I, think so. I think mm. so very much so i think in the indian case even in the chinese case mm. uh you really start to see that from the 1920s and 30s can you tell me about some early developments of ways to tame water well absolutely i mean the first hydroelectric dam in india is built in the early 20th century. Right. It's actually not built in British-ruled India. It's built in one of the princely states. It's built in Mysore, okay. one of the chunks of India that... that Do you think that was important? Uh, I think it was, actually. Was there a colonial reticence to invest there in? There was. There was precisely that. And in many ways, this, this development is being driven um, from outside the sort of formal territory of, of British India. But then, of course, British colonial uh, provincial governments in India get in, get in on that in the 1930s. One of the things that's often not recognised is that all of 
the largest dam projects that are most symbolic in India in the 1950s. And almost all of them were initially proposed and designed um, when India was still under British rule. I mean, a lot of them date from the 1940s, like the, the Badka Dam in Punjab um, and, and a number of the other big dam projects. Um, and, and this is the moment where you know Indian engineers and Indian nationalists are being inspired by the Tennessee Valley Authority in the US, by what they see as the Soviet success and there's an increasingly global sense that these particular uh, hydraulic technologies mm. large dams really mm. become the sort of symbolic mm. uh, core of that view mm. uh, and it's a global story mm. it really is and in many ways what you have is Indian activists and, and engineers and, and writers looking to the US and the Soviet Union partly as a way to criticize the stinginess of the British colonial government Oh, really? And they're looking at and saying, look what, look what they're doing in Tennessee Valley. Look what they're doing in the Soviet Union. That's what we can do here. But the British won't spend, spend the money. And this is very clear as a line of argument by the 1930s. I wasn't aware of that critique of colonialism, not, you know, critiquing the political, you know, infringement of sovereignty, but the idea that they're not spending and other countries are. Absolutely. I mean, I think that line, the the economic critique of colonialism, Mm -hmm. is a really powerful strand of Mm -hmm. Indian nationalism. And yes, there's the sort of sovereignty-based critique, there's the critique Mm -hmm. on the grounds that the British are alien rulers. Sure, yeah. But, in fact, the economic critique is, in some ways the first mm. to really sort of develop and in some ways it's this enduring line that runs through. So Indian engineers in the 1940s were travelling to the Soviet Union? For sure, much earlier than mm. that actually. Um, it's a particularly interesting character I write about in Unruly mm. Waters called um, Vishveshvaraya and he's after Indian independence he's lauded as a sort of engineer hero of the mm. nation mm. Um, but he worked for a princely state. He worked for the British government of Bombay, but then he worked for the princely state of Mysore, where he became prime minister. And he travels to the US, he travels all over Europe, and he's, and Japan is of course a major influence on a lot of mm. these um, Indian engineers uh, to show what an Asian nation can do mm. if it invests in technology. Mm. And you know, for, for Vishveshwaraya, Japan was the kind of counterexample of what was possible. So to what extent were these dams a way of stimulating economic growth and, and to what extent were they symbols of India's arrival and, you know, we want a big thing, you know, like the man on the moon type of thing, you know, we want a big statement, a, a, a display of our arrival and of our force and of our contrary, I mean, that's a, you know, sort of masculine thing of contrary and taming nature. Well, there's this wonderful book by David Blackburn on water mm. in German history and mm. it's called The Conquest of Nature. Mm, I think right. that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. And I really think that the second of those things is is so important, mm. the symbolic statement. And this is something you talked about in the book, the imagination, right? That this was a promise of freedom. Mm. Freedom from the monsoon. The shackles. Freedom from What's the quote in the, What was the quote in the book? I'll forget it now, about the monsoon being the determinant. Yeah, yeah. Well, so this is a kind of, this is an interesting thread that in the first decade of the 20th century, mm. the imperial finance minister says, my every budget is a gamble on the right. rates. Mm. And what's really striking to me is that the, you know, the Indian environmental activist Sunita Narayan, is one of the most influential Indian environmental activists, gave a lecture here at Harvard mm. about two years ago in mm. which she said uh, more or less the same thing in a slightly yeah, different way. Yeah. She said the monsoon is India's finance minister. Right, yes, yes. Um, and that is a thread mm. of thinking and argument mm. that India's always going to be exceptionally bound dependent by, on, yeah. bound by 
uh, constrained by. In, in, in that sense of submissiveness, in that sense of if you, if you understand unruly waters as putting India in a submissive position, then you can understand how the anti-colonial struggle would also be about sh re re uh, reshaping those narratives and about creating mastery. Yeah, That's yeah. a wonderful way of putting it. And you know, mastery is what this is about. Mm, mm. I think the question of what effect these dams actually had on economic mm. growth is a much harder one to answer. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I think clearly there were a positive local and regional effects, uh -huh. but but also enormous costs. Um, and of moving people, of moving people, of destroying Moving people, habitats. I mean, I think the movement of, the displacement of people is probably the single most um, painful or, mm. or, or devastating cost of these dams. Can I ask a comparative question? Yes. When you look at dams across Asia, do you find that it was harder for multi, well, for more democratic governments to create dams than Chinese? Because people often say, you know, in China, because it's an authoritarian regime, it's easier for them to do these sorts of things because they can coerce the population with limited backlash. Are no, there any difference this, in the politics is, of dams across Asia? This is one of the Asia? most interesting things mm. that counterintuitively, mm. um, these estimates are so approximate, it's hard to say, but mm. I would say at least as many people have been displaced by dams in India as China. And oh, China really? has built five times more dams than India. And the displacement in India... So each individual dam is displacing more people? I think so. Oh, because of the is that because of the high population density? That if you build any dam, it's going to be a problem? Not necessarily. Really? And because, um, you know, I think there are regions of China where, where dam construction has been um, uh, prevalent with population densities comparable to those. In, in but that's so interesting because, you know, I... I'd always, you know, read about the Three Gorges Dam, and, and you know, you think of China having huge displacement effects. I didn't realise that it was just as prevalent Massive. in India. And the question is, and how why was that, that possible? How is that possible politically? So this is interesting. Who is being displaced by the dams? Yes. Overwhelmingly, it's Adivasis. Right. Yes. Others who do not have as much voice, as mm. much political power mm. as, and as is that, those does that who reflect, Does that reflect dams? like the geographical distribution of Adivasis? Like for example, tribal or mountainous people happen to be in places Certainly. where it's great for a dam. There's, there's, there's a lot of that, but mm. there's also quite mm. clearly, a, 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 you know, some of this is about the exercise of state power. There has mm. there been plenty of occasions where state violence has been in, involved in, oh, in really? displacing people mm. from their homes. You know, the, the Narmada movement is, of course, the best known of the anti-dam movements in Tell India. Tell me about that. And that originates in the 19th. Um, the, the idea of, of damming the Narmada River through a whole series of hydraulic works mm. dates back to the 1960s. Mm. And the largest centerpiece dam was only inaugurated finally last year. And there's been enormous popular resistance to this. Mm. But also, it has been such a symbolic issue that the state has, has not backed down. And indeed has kind of ploughed ahead at, at any cost. And the cost has been enormous in terms of numbers of people displaced. It's been one of the largest social movements, if not the largest social movement in India since independence. Would you say so? Well, I think so. Why do you think the largest social movement has been environmental? And why haven't they been more successful? That's a really good question. I mean, in some ways you can say that they have been successful mm. in mobilizing enormous amounts of support. Mm. Um, it's an interesting and shifting coalition of mm. different mm. kinds of interests, mm. I think, that have mm. gone into movements like the Narmada mm. movement. Mm. 
but at some level you could say they they were defeated because mm. I mean here's I think going back to our question about growth and the limits to growth activists across South Asia have always raised concerns about sustainability mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like going beyond dams now sure. they've always raised concerns about the sustainability of growth so I'm thinking now about pollution so just mm-hmm. sidestepping slightly yeah activists have always you know in the 1960s 1970s mm-hmm. 1980s raising concerns about pollution yeah. pollution but they haven't been so successful in securing environmental regulation, whether it's in China or India, mm-hmm. etc. Why is that? Well, this goes back to some of, of what we were talking about earlier, Alice, in terms mm. of your own work and in terms of what generally helps social movements mm. to achieve positive change. Mm. And I think the history of environmental regulation in India is very interesting because there's both a top-down element and a grassroots element. Oh, really? Grassroots environmental regulation? Well, Grassroots pressure for environmental oh, right, regulation. Yes, so what happens is, as, at least as I read it, and this is something mm. I am actually continuing to be mm. to work on, some of the earliest environmental laws in India are not a direct response to activist pressure. Right. They actually come from a sense of international awakening. So Indira Gandhi is one of the only heads of state to attend the first UN Environment Conference in 1972. Okay. And she makes a very sophisticated speech at that conference, really setting out, perhaps for the first time so clearly, the position that the Indian government has continued to take, Mm. which is that environmental protection cannot be divorced from poverty alleviation and social justice. Right, yes, no, I recall this. It's really that speech. Um, And and it's the the question that I think that the line that continues to be quoted is, are not poverty and and need the greatest polluters? Yes. She comes back from Stockholm in 1972 Mm. and and through a series of of processes that I don't think anyone quite understands, Mm. partly because the archives haven't been opened, Um, in she passes the first water and air pollution laws in India, in, and the, these are quite far-reaching. And this is by so the she, early. So you think 70s. she that maybe got these ideas from other places, from learning from leaders in other places, or always was, was mobilised by her own sort of central role in the Stockholm conference. Right. Okay. And I think was surrounded by a number of advisors who were concerned uh, with a whole range of environmental problems. Wild, wildlife protection is one of them. Yeah. Um, cultural heritage is one of them. Mm-hmm. This is the moment where um, there's a major controversy about the construction of a, an oil refinery near the Taj Mahal mm. and the idea that that might actually damage this yeah, monument. Right. And so by the mid-70s, India actually has air and water pollution legislation mm-hmm. on the books, mm-hmm. which on paper looks... And how did that compare to other places in South Asia? Was in India an outlier in that regard, the environmental uh, regulation? I think it was certainly one of the first mm. um, if you think about South and South. If we Asia. compare it to Bangladesh for instance, what, what was similar going on in Bangladesh? Well I mean Bangladesh was only a few years out of its its, mm. its civil war and yeah, the war independence so, so I think You're not going to be doing environmental regulation the, the as your first day after, there. Right, yeah. but, but you see elements of that in other parts of Southeast mm. Asia as well. Mm. So that's the first step, mm. that it, this does seem to me to be coming from the top down mm. but by the end of the 1970s you know the Indian environmental movement is really gathering mm. pace and with those laws on the books, and you start to get public interest litigation in the 1980s oh, right. on pollution. Right. And there's a particular uh, lawyer. Uh, there's one particular lawyer, M. C. Mehta, who brings the first air and water pollution cases to the Supreme Court. Um, and you see 
uh, the development of more sort of research-based environmental groups like the Centre for Science and Environment in Delhi, mm. which remains sort of mm. a premier institution in mm. India. Another thing that struck me that I find very interesting mm. is that there's a lot of transnational connections between the activists that start to happen in the 19, end of the 1970s. Mm, mm. And the Indian environmental movement actually uh, quite explicitly says that the inspiration for them for writing their first report on the state of the Indian environment, which mm. is 1983, mm. comes from Malaysia. And they had attended a meeting in Penang, which had already emerged in the 70s as quite a center for consumer activism, mm. which starts to take on a bit of an environmental tinge by the end okay. of the 1970s. And they, the Penang group, publish a state of Malaysia's environment. And the Indian activists, in the preface to the first report, says, you know, this is where this is coming from. Mm. That's a history I don't really trace in unruly waters, but I think it's something that I am starting to think about. Can I ask you a question on. about the, these activists and these coalitions? Yeah. To what extent do these different diverse interests form a cross-class coalition? So if we think about the Adivasis, mm. if we think about the sort of urban middle class sort of people sort of in like with a, a broader, you know, going slightly beyond immediate needs and yeah. a, a broader concerns, to what extent do they forge alliances? Do we see that happening or do they have disparate concerns or do we see top-down domination from the urban elite? So that, how does it play out class-wise? very interesting question. So if you think about the late 70s and the mm. different issues that mm. we might now categorize as environmental issues that emerge, yes. they're, they're often emerging in quite different contexts. Yes. So there is the sort of urban middle class concern with preservation that mm. comes out of a place like Bombay. Mm. You know, there's quite a movement in Bombay in the 1970s to stop particular kinds of development. Because they wanted to keep their own environment nice. Yes, yes, absolutely. Then there's the wildlife conservation. Mm. That emerges as a particularly uh, distinctive strand of the Indian environmental movement. Um, My my, my friend Mahesh Rangarajan has both written about this and was also involved as a policymaker in some of India's wildlife commissions Mm. in the 1980s. That's a distinct strand. So this Mm. was about creating um, wildlife reserves, Mm. etc. There is, of course, then immediately a tension between Adivasi communities that Mm. use forests and this idea that forests need to be walled off and preserved. Right, I see. There are then people's movements which are very much more about livelihoods. Yes. I'd say there are moments when these do come together. They Mm. coalesce in a way that is cross-class, that really comes up with a distinctive idea of environmentalism which is often referred to as the environmentalism of the poor, the idea that environmental justice and social justice are the same thing. Yeah, go back to the yeah. Indira Going, going mm-hmm. back to mm-hmm. that. Um, but they're also unstable coalitions. Yes, and yes. I think there are clearly and moments tensions, when yes. there, there are tensions between them mm-hmm. and, and that perhaps helps to explain why the environmental movement has intermittent success and comes right. together um, intermittently. So by the 1980s, there are these laws on the books, mm. which are, which could be quite far-reaching. Mm. And these laws on the books, you're saying, do embolden activists, like they, seeing a they sense, do. They anticipating do. government responsiveness, various activists mobilize and push for litigation, And what then deflates the activists yes. is the fact that these laws are difficult to implement. Right. That these laws... Um, are quite devolved and they put a lot of um, in terms of pollution for example they give a lot of power to uh, local level pollution control boards Mm. which are end up being quite easily influenced by local industrialists so what you're saying then is there is a bit of an arc in activist expectation so first of all they see the law on the books and they're like boom 
right, the government's going to be responsive, let's mobilise, let's invest in this, we could really get somewhere. And then they say that actually the government doesn't enforce it, doesn't implement it, it's all controlled by these vested interests, these businesses, and then they become more despondent because the government's are, not responsive. And there are waves of this. So again right, in the 2000s, okay. the Supreme Court of India, uh, in a way that um, Keshav Ramakrishnan has written about, develops a kind of environmental jurisprudence. Mm. And there are certain victories that environmental activists mm. um, win in the courts and India sets up a national green tribunal which hears specifically environmental So you cases. keep on referring to, sorry I'm interrupting you here, you Not keep on referring to jurisprudence and litigation. Mm. It has that been the, the primary mode of environmental activism, using the courts as a way of litigating, as a way of punishing rather than state intervention to lay sort of, you know, I'm thinking of you know, the sort of gaullist French system of, you know, regulating companies saying you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that or, so it's I been a, a litigate, it's, it's been, it, it, I guess maybe Maybe that's courts, a sort of English inheritance of the, the courts and the streets. Right, okay. I mean, so this is, mm. there's been a, a real a combination of, of public protest, mm. and that draws on a kind of Gandhian inspiration often. Okay. Then, you know, the, uh, if you think of Medha Patka, who, who led the Narmada movement, um, a lot of this is about civil disobedience, a lot of this is about peaceful protest. Mm. Uh, there has also been a, a recourse to the courts, and there's mm. a wonderful new book by Rohit Day called A People's Constitution, which shows how early on after Indian independence, very ordinary people embrace the courts. Okay. And, and take, it's, one, it's an absolutely wonderful book, and, and, and I think there's a, he doesn't speak very much specifically about mm. the environment, but it's a direct line from that to mm. the fact that yes, environmental activists are using the courts all the time, mm. but they're also being defeated in the courts at yes, times. Yes. And there are also moments when just what we were talking about before becomes an issue so that um, at one point the Supreme Court of, of, of the Delhi court mm. ruled that to clean Delhi's air, industries needed to be moved out of the city. And of course, you know, imagine the effect that has on employment, yeah, livelihoods, on yeah. livelihoods. Yeah. So that immediately sets up a clash between yes. different imperatives. So what's the explanation of why activists have been unsuccessful? Is it about government's prioritising growth? Is it about the strength of industry? What people perceive as in their self-interest? Is it the short-term electoral horizons and wanting to promote jobs at the expense of other things? I mean, is, is democracy itself a cause of the lack of environmental degradation and that politicians are trying to get re-elected every five years or whatever? I think one of the things you see is that, and I don't have an explanation for this, but you find similar patterns across quite different political systems yes. in Asia. One of the things I think is important is to go back to first principles and think about sort of longer history of ideas. Mm. I think the idea that it is growth versus environmental protection mm. is absolutely strongly rooted mm. in India and China. Mm. The idea that you can very easily dismiss environmental activists as anti-growth. Right anti-development. Mm. That's still the language of the Indian state today. Mm. Oh, right, okay. Very, very strongly so. And do we see that in other countries, I like in China? Do. I think you do. Very much so. Uh, China, I, th I don't know the Chinese context so well. I think mm. there are ways in which it is different. Mm. But there is a third sort of and, and, and more dispiriting part mm. to the story, which is that in fact, in India, you've seen a reversal of even the laws on the books. You know, mm. they're being watered down. Mm. The current government is profoundly anti-environment, mm. um, and, and so what laws had been passed—coastal zone regulation, etc.—are 
are, are being worked Now, I'm, I'm glad you raised Modi because I had a question because I was thinking, because as we see this rise of the right wing, the restoration of the proud Hindu nation, yeah. to, you know, when we were talking earlier, we were talking about how mastery over water was seen as a part of India regaining control. And as I understand it, and you should correct me here, but part of the narrative and the idea of the rise of the Hindu right is that India had been trampled upon by you know, foreign powers and needed to regain its sense of pride and regain its sense of strength. Have we seen any investment in any sense of mastery over water under Modi? Has that emerged at all? Oh yes, I mean there's been a sort of multiplication of large dam projects. Oh really? Under um, Modi specifically? Under Modi specifically, um, though a lot of them continue projects that were and already And to what extent might that be ideological or, or maybe that's just an economic so growth type So Modi, when he was Chief Minister of Gujarat, yes. was very much in favour of pressing ahead with an Armada project. Right. And he opened, just last year, the Centerpiece Dam. And one of the things, you know, his speech there was very much in the language of, of autonomy and oh, mastery. And so so it's this recurring the, theme of mastery over water. So one of the victories of the Narmada movement mm -hmm. was in the um, early 90s, they essentially persuaded the World Bank to mm. withdraw from the project. Oh, really? And at the time, that was a big deal. Yeah. And it's interesting that... 2017, Modi actually says, with or without the World Bank, we did this. Mm. And so it is almost a sort of defiant... Independent, right. Independent. We don't need we their don't money. We don't need foreign money. Yeah, this yeah. This is about uh, the good sovereignty. of the nation. Sovereignty. Right. Um, of course, the other part of the story is the fact that you know, Chinese dam building is on altogether a different scale. Yeah. It's, it's, it's even yeah. larger than what's going on in India. And it's much more than Indian companies. It's Chinese construction companies mm. that are spearheading dam construction in sub-Saharan Africa, yes, Central Asia, mm. you know, all over the place. This is a global story, yeah, but it's sure. a different global story. The story Finish. we know from the 50s is, mm. is the American water engineers that mm. are going around, many of whom oh, used yeah. to work for the Tennessee Valley Authority. Mm. Um, you know, they're selling their expertise, they mm. act as consultants. Mm. Now it's a very different story. So I want to, when we talk when we talk about the ideology and the imagination of mastery, how does that play out in China and East Asian countries? Is it seen of in the same way, or? I think there are a lot of resonances. Okay, okay. I think I think in that sense, there's a a view of nature as an obstacle that that okay. is as powerful. On the other hand, I think there's no question that there is greater state awareness of and concern about environmental degradation in China than in India. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, I'm sure of it. And why, um, why might that be? Partly, I think there was a recognition at some point in the last 10 years or so mm -hmm. on the part of the Chinese state mm -hmm. that devastatingly bad air quality was yeah, having all sorts sure. of negative effects. I think there's been plenty of environmental activism in yeah, China. Yeah, huge, yeah, it's um, one of the leading in, types in a, of... Well, indeed. And being perceived as a threat to the government. The yeah, there's a really interesting book called China Water Warriors, which really talks about how these local movements mm. have, have used the language of the environmental preservation. So I think there's a sort of self-interest in, yes. in taking some mm. of these things yeah, seriously. Of and then I think there's a kind of global outward-facing issue that, you know, as the US retreats from any sort of mm. commitment to mm. these things... I think there's a sense in China that, that 
this is a place where China can play mm, a global, global leadership, role. yeah, with their cap and trade system and all sorts of environmental you know, Okay, so now we've got, and now we're thinking up to date. I want to talk about climate change. Mm. So one thing that was hugely concerning: the New York Times had an article out last week about the Himalayan glaciers. Can you tell me about the that and the threats that poses? Yes. Well, I mean, this latest report. In many ways, confirms or even exceeds our worst fears. Yeah, and you discuss this in the book. Yeah, how fast they are they are vanishing. How much? How much? How much water? What's the threat? So here's the threat. I mean, at least half a billion people depend directly on those Himalayan rivers for their livelihood. The broader number of people who depend in a slightly more indirect way is three billion. Wow. And the projections are that as the glaciers melt. Initially, we will see an augmentation in river flow, including perhaps um, more intensive flooding,、mm. especially when there are heavy rainfall events,、mm. which too are, are projected to become more、mm. frequent. So,、but、huge areas could become huge flooded. Huge areas, but at this, in a, in a way, the greater fear is、right. that by the middle of the century, it's, project, it's projected that once the melt. Is well underway. Yes, that the rivers will dry up for part of the year. Really, and that these are. Why explain to me? I'm totally ignorant. Why? Why would melt? Because initially, the, they, the, they usually just gradually melt, and that feeds the river. But、right. if they、that、melt all the, at once, then that feeds the river. If they melt more rapidly, then that will swell the rivers to begin with. But eventually,、right. that will reduce the source. Oh, I see. Right. Okay.、Um, And it is projected that some of these. So that's the bigger concern: the, the lack of the river and then the lack of irrigation,、yeah. rather than just、that's、the mass、right. flooding. That's right. Well, both. And, and, and how? And how? how do we have any sense of what the time horizon might be? There are so many different yes, projections, course, and、yeah. and、um, I think one of the concerns is how is all of this water infrastructure actually heightening risk? Mm, mm. So many of the. Around 400 dams are projected to be built in the Himalayas over the next 20 years. What are the implications for those dams of this changing river flow? Of the so, is it a good in terms of is how does a dam work if there is a glacier melt? I mean, can a dam withstand well, a glacier melt? Well, this is the question. We、it? don't know,、right. and, and a lot of environmental activists are deeply worried that that hasn't been taken into account. Oh, really? In in in. The design and construction of numbers.、Yeah. It's also like if you had a really hot summer, how how fast can a glacier melt? We're we're going to see. Yeah, yeah.、Uh, you know, we're going to see. And, and so activists are raising these concerns. Yes. How are governments responding? So far, I would say that certainly in the South Asian context,、mm. there's been very little action. Really, very little action.、Um, is that not is it not perceived as an imminent threat,、no. as an existential crisis? No, it isn't. And I think this is partly about far beyond South Asia.、Mm. You know, why is it that climate change isn't in this country, in the、yeah. U.S., perceived as an existential crisis, despite? All of But isn't the, there a greater you know, risk? I mean, if you're living right next to a glacier that might melt, I mean, I, you would think so. But there has not been. The kind of mobilisation around this,、uh, partly so because I think. So, is the story think, about the weakness of the activists that there aren't the activists aren't that concerned about? They're too small in number. I'm not sure. I would say that in many ways, it's the issue is more that in South Asia, climate change, in a way, sits on top of a pyramid、mm. of environmental challenges. Right. Some of which are so immediate and so pressing、mm. that climate change. 
compounds them. Mm, yes. But doesn't necessarily, I don't think it makes sense even to sort of isolate it as an environmental yes, problem. Yes. Uh, you know, some of this is about reckless construction. Some of this is about galloping inequality. Yes. Some of this is about the undermining of, of all sorts of both natural and infrastructural systems of mm. resilience mm. that comes from... If you think about the Himalayas, there's massive urbanization going mm. on in the Himalayas. That also is playing a role yeah. in how melting glaciers and changing river flows will actually affect human society. But here's a question. If part of the narrative is about mastery over nature, why isn't mastery over climate change? Why doesn't that become part of it? Or, or like mastery over the monsoons, like trying to control, you know, monsoons are part of the climate change story and the fluctuating. Why? I think that will become part mm -hmm. of it, but it'll come part of it in a very distinctive way. I think mm -hmm. it'll become part of it in the sense that it already is in some of the discourse here, which is, you know, geoengineering, mm. that there will be a technological fix to climate change too. Yes, but you know, Sunil, mm. and I'm not saying that I'm going to leave academia, but if I wanted to become, say, an Indian politician, maybe I should frame, maybe if I was an Indian politician environmentalist, I would frame mastery over climate change as my way of tapping into the sort of ideological discourse, yeah. if I wanted to, you know, give up academia to become an Indian politician. I mean, to be fair, the Indian government is far more more open about the real risks of climate change than the US government is. Yeah. You know, there are ways in mm -hmm. which this is more about the scale and the complexity of the mm -hmm. problem, but it is also about you know, particular ideas about technology as the only viable... Oh, I see. So there's still that faith in technology. For sure. Technology I might that's global. Do we see any investment in R&D to try to... There is interest in renewable energy in India, right, especially yeah. in solar. Yeah, so how, how, is that, how are solar markets developing? They're not nearly as developed as in China, but that's partly, I understand this is far from my expertise, but I understand that some of the materials that are vital to the construction of solar panels are, are, are largely uh, found in China. Right. And, and so a lot of the solar panels in India are actually imported from China. Mm. Um, it hasn't taken off in quite the same way, but there is interest in it. Mm. I think there is some, some, some rollout of, of solar energy mm. going on. Mm. And I think there are energy activists who believe that that is a viable solution for India. What, looking forwards, how do you think this might play out? I mean, as climate change gets worse and worse, would you anticipate that we'd see more environmental activism and that would trigger a threat to the regimes and then suddenly more governments will take it up? Like, is it just a matter of waiting and hoping that it's going to... Well, I mean, I was talking to um, Stephen Wilkinson, mm. who's chair of the political science department at Yale, mm. who was, um, I haven't read the work, but was reporting some, mm. some ongoing mm. research about under what circumstances might yeah, environmental yeah. issues actually have an impact mm. on electoral decisions right. or on, on and, and, and this is an ongoing project. I look forward very yeah, much to yeah. the results, I think, because I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are parts of South Asia where in the imminent future these are going to have to become political issues. Mm. Mm. These are going to have to become political issues. I'm not sure what form they'll yeah, take or yeah. what language they will be expressed in, but they, they will. Mm. I think one of the things that I most enjoyed about your book is how it traces how people, thinking about people's imaginations and people's dreams and people's understandings of themselves and their roles in the world and how that shapes how they engage with their environment. And I would really recommend the book to everyone because it's so beautifully written and immaculately carefully researched and the sort of comparative politics element that's weaved into the historical narrative. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you um, so much. So, Sunil, thank you very much for sharing oh, your insights with us. It's been a pleasure. Us. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>